Hi, I'm Matt Reed. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm the CEO of the Aga Khan Foundation here in the UK, and it is my great pleasure to welcome all of you uh, to, uh, to Pluralism in Architecture, a partnership between Maki and Associates and the Aga Khan Development Network. Um, we have with us today uh, Gary Kamamoto, who is uh, the, uh, a partner at Maki and Associates uh, coming to us from Tokyo, as well as Victoria Jessen Pike, who uh, was for the duration of the project, uh, the client side architect, so the architect for AKDN, helping oversee things uh, with Gary here in London. And I think you're in for a very good conversation. We've invited you here today as part of Open House, uh, uh, the Open House uh, London Festival. Uh, in 2020. Now, in normal times, we also would have tried to have you over to the building. Uh, in previous years, we've had as many as a thousand people uh, come to the building over the course of a weekend. Unfortunately, we can't do that this year. So what we wanted to do was somehow invite you in virtually uh, to spend some time with Gary and Victoria and get a sense of this building and the 16-year the, the partnership between Maki and Associates and His Highness the Aga Khan and the Aga Khan Development Network. The Aga Khan Center is actually the third uh, of three buildings. Uh, and so Gary and Victoria will talk about the other two buildings, one in Ottawa, one in Toronto, and then the third one here in London. Um, I'm actually speaking to you from the Aga Khan Center. I was able to come in today. Uh, I thought that would be fitting and appropriate. And I have to say, for those of us who uh, live and work here, uh, it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary place, and we're incredibly grateful to Maki and Associates for for having done what we think is a, is a wonderful job. And I think as you uh, listen to the discussion today, you'll get a sense of why we're so uh, proud to be here and happy to be here. Actually, the 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 building, the Aga Khan Center, houses three Aga Khan institutions who've been in London for over 40 years, but never had a permanent home uh, until two years ago when we moved in to this building. Uh, the Aga Khan Foundation, which I represent, uh, the Aga Khan University's Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations, and the Institute for Ismaili Studies. And so uh, all told, we have about 300 people uh, in, in normal times using the building on any given day. That includes uh, students, faculty, researchers, staff, um, all using the building in a variety of ways. And again, Gary and Victoria will talk a little bit about uh, some of the challenges uh, that they faced when they were trying to, to design a building that would uh, convey a number of messages and at the same time respond to the needs of its users. And I have to say they've done an excellent job. We're very, very happy with it. I mean, as I mentioned, the, um, the public response to the building and the interest in the institutions has really been uh, extremely gratifying and, 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 and surprising for organizations uh, like us that didn't have a home before. We've had over, over 9,000 people visit the building and tours. We've had uh, a, a very active uh, events program bringing in uh, international uh, uh, conferences uh, and other activities, exhibitions, etc. Things that, frankly, we were never able to do in London or not able to do as well as we were in this building. And so we actually see the building as a critical ingredient, bringing our three organizations together and allowing us to, to, to fulfill our missions uh, in, in uh, I would say, a more expanded ways. Um, one of the key features uh, of all three institutions 
is our dedication to the concept of pluralism, that notion of respecting all traditions and cultures, uh, the diversity within those traditions and cultures, and certainly for the Aga Khan Foundation of working with everyone wherever we happen to be present. And it was that spirit of pluralism and engagement that His Highness wanted to see expressed in the fabric of the building. And so uh, I think uh, you will be taken on that journey with uh, Gary uh, and, and Victoria shortly. I think it's fitting that Victoria will be moderating this since she was the client-side architect for us and the building really was in her hands or we rather uh, our, uh, the needs from our side were in her hands. And so we feel like we're in very good company today. So Victoria, I'm gonna hand it over to you. Uh, and I just wanna thank everybody for joining us this morning. Great, thank you very much, Matt. So my name is Victoria, as Matt said, and um, it has been an incredible privilege and honor to work for um, His Highness the Aga Khan and the Aga Khan Development Network um, since 2011. And as um, Matt said, my role was as on the client side, working between all of our stakeholders, all of our end users, and working with um, Mackie and Associates and with the, the very large design team to really build both um, through all the ideals of the project and all the principles and to fulfill the vision and also to make sure that we ended up with a really functional building that was gonna really last for a very long time. And um, you'll hear more from Gary about how that's been achieved. And as, as Matt said, I think um, I've been also following up a lot with all the people who are using the building now and it's, it's been incredibly, um, important and fundamentally improving the way all the scholars, students and staff work together. And I think, um, and it's, it's, it's really fulfilled in every aspect, everything we set out to do. So it couldn't have been more exciting. Um, we set out on this journey in, in around 2011. Actually, I got involved when there was the architect selection process. And on the appointment of Mackie and Associates, we realized that um, this was going to be the first building designed by a Japanese architect in London, the first permanent building. So that's also a really exciting, um, exciting gain for London in architectural terms. So I, and I think that again, as Matt said, a lot of people have been through the building for lots of reasons and the quality of the architecture and the special and the Japanese sensibility of this architecture is something I think that is, is very unique in London. Uh, I'm going to introduce Gary a little further. As I said, it's, it's been a great pleasure to work with Gary and I think we're, we are, we're now friends, friends for life. And um, Gary, of course, has been working most of his career, Mackie and Associates, established in, um, by Professor Fumihiko Mackie in 1965. And Fumihiko Mackie is um, a world-renowned architect he was awarded the Pritzker Prize in 1993, which is the architectural community's most, most lauded um, architecture prize. And uh, what is, as Gary let us know the other day, what is absolutely incredible, at the age of 93, Professor Mackie is still working. Um, and it's, it's just a joy for all of us to hear that, it's incredible. Gary is responsible for the firm's international projects. So um, with the, I guess with the exception of the last six months, Gary has been flying around the world, um, nurturing all these projects, including these three Aga Khan projects. 
and some of the other projects to name seminal projects are that Gary has been responsible for include the the new MIT building for Harvard which was completed in 2010 and the new Tower 4 at the World Trade Center in New York so um, it's a it's a great pleasure as I said to introduce Gary before I hand over I just wanted to uh, just read out some housekeeping things for everyone on the call today. So during the talk, if you would like to submit a question, there's a Q&A box on the screen and you can type your question in there. And it'd be wonderful if you want to let us know your name and where you're, um, where you're watching from, that would, be, um, that would be great. And Gary will try to answer as many of the questions as possible at the end of the talk. And also just to say that this talk is being recorded um, it's being live streamed and recorded and the recording will be sent out to all of the um, registrants. And I think the last thing just to mention that um, you are able to watch through Facebook and YouTube, but I think you're not able to issue questions. You, you need to be a registrant to do that. So without further ado, I would like to hand over to Gary and um, we will get back to the discussion later. Thank you. So the title of our uh, talk today, Pluralism and uh, Architecture, I thought that uh, it would be apt uh, to uh, begin uh, with uh, the statements from His Highness about pluralism. And although this is a talk about design and uh, architecture, uh, I thought it was important to uh, set the stage uh, by uh, some important uh, ideas about pluralism, uh, which uh, His Highness uh, has been uh, talking about. So I read um, that His Highness says that pluralism is a process and not a product. It is a mentality, a way of looking at a diverse and changing world. In this perspective, diversity is not a burden to be endured, but an opportunity to, to be welcomed. In a world where cultures increasingly interpenetrate one another, a more confident and a more generous outlook is needed. What this means perhaps above all else is the readiness to participate in a true dialogue with diversity, not only in our personal relationships, but in an institutional and international relationships also. That takes work and it takes patience. Above all, it implies a readiness to listen. A pluralist cosmopolitan society actively seeks to understand it and to learn from it. A cosmopolitan society regards the distinctive threads of our particular identities as elements that bring beauty to a larger social fabric. I think it, it's these thoughts that we try to uh, express uh, in the buildings them, themselves and, and uh, hopefully by the end of our uh, talk today that uh, you might be able to see how some of the, these thoughts has been reflected uh, into the architecture through an incredible uh, process. So, the, so this is gonna involve, in our office, we've been calling these uh, three projects the, the trilogy and uh, they are of different programs, different locations, the Delegation Building in Ottawa, the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, and the Aga Khan Center in London. And, and they are all distinctive different uh, building types. 
Uh, and uh, although they were uh, independent, uh, for us, this was a 16-year journey. And as you can see on the timeline down below, uh, there seems to be a continuous kind of evolution of thought and ideas that uh, cross and uh, develop from uh, project to project. So although they're distinctive, uh, you might be able to see uh, the crossover of uh, some of uh, the ideas that have influenced uh, each of the projects. What was fascinating uh, was that, uh, as Victoria had mentioned, uh, we're based in Tokyo. And uh, as uh, uh, we uh, started our practice back in 1965, uh, our work is primarily based in Japan. And, uh, and we are uh, based in Tokyo. So uh, a lot of the work is very uh, singular, very homogeneous. Uh, our projects in Japan, working with Japanese. However, uh, these projects offered an incredible opportunity. Uh, when I've counted, uh, there are uh, people, company, uh, individuals from uh, 21 different nations that were involved in uh, these three Agakon projects. And I wish to thank uh, in some of our listeners today uh, who might be listening that have participated in this journey. Uh, you can see that there are a number of companies from uh, different parts of the world who, who has uh, collaborated and brought these uh, buildings uh, to fruition. And it, it's, it's not a singular mind that creates these buildings. It is this kind of process where people from uh, different regions, different backgrounds, different expertise uh, contribute to the cause in, in which uh, these buildings were uh, put together. So the first project I will uh, bring you to uh, Ottawa. Uh, and this project started back in uh, 2002 on an incredible site uh, facing uh, the Ottawa River. And it faces uh, the ceremonial route called the uh, Confederation Boulevard, which is the his uh, mile of uh, history where all of the important buildings, including uh, Parliament Hill, uh, belong uh, on Confederation Boulevard. And this was the last uh, site uh, on that uh, ceremonial route that the delegation building uh, embarked. What was unusual in our collaboration uh, with His Highness was uh, typically as architects, you would probably get a telephone book thick uh, brief uh, specifying all the requirements of the project. But in every single endeavor uh, that uh, we have had with His Highness, uh, we receive uh, uh, actually a vision statement, which is almost like a piece of poetry. And uh, I would always keep this, this letter uh, on my desk through the duration uh, of the project and continue to read and reread it to understand and to, to cross-check uh, the design to see if we're heading in the right direction. And this is an excerpt of the first letter we received uh, in what uh, the delegation building aspired to achieve. And His Highness says, uh, in a rock crystal, the cuts and angles permit both transparency as well as translucency. It pleases and confuses the eye by its internal planes running at different angles, creating a sense of visual mystery. The delegation building, in a sense, should be somewhat mysterious and visually esoteric. 
It should not be blatant, but ethereal, not obvious, but difficult to captivate. The goal is to create a building which causes the viewer to wonder how different elements and different planes relate to each other, how they work together to tickle the eye. The design should consider the use of structural system of glass, steel, aluminum to create an extraordinary visual inquiry. Uh, when we first received this, uh, we really couldn't figure out how to make a building out of this. And uh, it was through uh, quite a bit of study and exploration that, uh, that was required and, and, and a lot of back and forth uh, within the stakeholders and with His Highness to uh, arrive at uh, a probable building. Here you can see the site um, which faces the, the beautiful river. It's, it's a very irregular shape. And uh, it also has a level difference of 3.5 uh, meters. And uh, how to kind of create and manifest that idea, um, although uh, we were giving a carte blanche in the design, um, there was an aspiration to uh, kind of interpret and bring kind of a Islamic uh, modern spirit to the, the building as well. And I think our first insight uh, when uh, understanding uh, the context was that we, we thought that maybe uh, kind of the spatial spirit that a lot of uh, buildings in the Muslim world have is to create kind of a inner cosmos, uh, kind of uh, its own world. And this was the first sketch uh, we made uh, of having uh, maybe a very simple building form and what we were calling an inner sanctuary. And some of the references that we all know uh, from the Muslim world, uh, on the left you see the Bikala uh, of Al Ghori in uh, Cairo. Uh, which is uh, centers uh, around a central courtyard, uh, completely secluded from the hustle and bustle of the exterior world. And the, the bottom ground floor of the courtyard is, is where uh, nomadic people come together to trade, to interact, and then uh, up above, uh, you will have uh, apartments and uh, ho hotels where uh, they would stay. And a space like that, together with what we thought perhaps uh, a, a beautiful uh, landscape courtyard, such as uh, the Port of Lions in Alhambra, perhaps we thought could create this kind of inner cosmos uh, within uh, the site. So we immediately translated this concept into uh, what, what in, in our office, what we call a sketch model. And uh, when you talk about sketches, it's always uh, on paper, but we, we do this uh, three-dimensionally. And this was one of the earlier models of trying to uh, capture that idea of a rock crystal together uh, with the concept of an inner sanctuary of uh, having something very special at the inner core, which is hidden from uh, the outside. And that uh, particular rock crystal, we thought, uh, could be created through a series of uh, 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 layers, uh, starting with an outer form, uh, which uh, kind of translates uh, into a, a sequence and series of, of different ar architectural uh, layered elements 
uh, starting uh, with the glazing to follow the, the form of the crystal and uh, an inner shroud, which is almost like a kind of a, a, a hanging element uh, between the space and uh, the glass and uh, an inner uh, screen, uh, which also adds to that, that composition. So there is a series of uh, seven layers uh, that, that we began to investigate, uh, which translated again into kind of a tectonic drawing and a model of how uh, those different layers might be able to create uh, that kind of uh, experience. Uh, that was expressed in, in the vision statements. Uh, here you can see the, the outer form, which is glazed, and then the inner shroud and, and kind of a lattice screen on the, on the inside, all seemingly kind of hanging uh, within this uh, glass enclosure. And that was converted into a more uh, specific uh, study model and this was our kind of architectural version of the, uh, the rock crystal. And when we presented this uh, to his highness, uh, he asked us, uh, will the actual building look as good as the model? And uh, we had promised him it would be better. And that was uh, a, a kind of a, a big pressure uh, placed on uh, our collective team to see how uh, this particular image uh, can be translated uh, into architecture. So uh, with that uh, glazed atrium, uh, together with that was paired a uh, courtyard, which was modeled uh, in same proportions as the Court of Lions at Alhambra. It's a double square, 16 by uh, 32. So together with that garden and the crystal, uh, that created the kind of heart of the building, uh, which was the inner sanctuary. From the outside, uh, as per the sketch, uh, it's a very simple building form. Uh, it's cladded in a material called neuroparier, which came from Japan. And we, we akin that to an artificial rock crystal. Uh, this material uh, called neuroparier is actually uh, created by uh, glass beads. And that is made into a molten and hardened to create this kind of crystallized uh, glass material and uh, that clads the entire building on the outside. And perched behind it, uh, you see the kind of crystal, uh, which kind of arouses this curiosity uh, perching out from the uh, outer form. When you get on into the inside of the building, a completely different world uh, begins to unfold. So here uh, you can see the, the different layers of, uh, of the glass and, and the shrouded screen. And uh, this shroud uh, that you see in, in white up above is actually uh, created with glass fiber uh, textile. And this too we brought from Japan. Uh, it's, it, was, it wasn't actually a building material. Uh, this was devised for uh, asphalt reinforcement. And uh, it had a beautiful property of glowing. Uh, the light actually gets into the fiber. So uh, we thought that uh, it would be magnificent to actually create a shroud out of it. And as you can see in this photograph, the, the ceiling just glows and the entire atrium is kind of like a sundial as the sun moves around the uh, interior of the space. 
Uh, on the walls is actually a uh, aluminum screen, and this was actually inspired by the traditional jali that you see in Muslim architecture, which uh, often, in the old days, uh, the, the uh, traditional jali was actually carved stone. In our case, uh, we've actually made this out of cast aluminum, and uh, there was uh, quite a bit of search done how to do this, and actually a, uh, uh, a foundry who actually makes automotive parts was actually found in the outskirts of Toronto, and uh, you, you see some of the images of how this uh, modern uh, interpretation of the Jali was actually made out of cast aluminum, just, just seemingly uh, hangs from the, uh, from the glass up above. The, the magic of this is the, the interplay with the light. And when the sun uh, hits it, uh, you actually get a, a, a four-dimensional architecture, which is the, the light and shadow that, it, that is uh, cast from the screen uh, on the uh, surrounding architecture on the floors uh, and on the walls. And from the atrium, uh, you see the, uh, the courtyard, which is kind of the, the, the inner garden, uh, which you discover once you uh, get into the building. Uh, but one of the challenges, as, as some of our audience might know, uh, Ottawa uh, tends to be very cold and uh, maybe three months out of the year, there, there's heavy snow. And a lot of the garden types in the Muslim world are in warm, hot regions. And a lot of the planting is actually flush in the floor uh, because uh, the uh, irrigation uh, uh, for the planting. And in our case in Ottawa, uh, knowing that uh, it snows, we actually uh, reversed uh, the mechanism of the planting and actually created uh, raised uh, planter beds uh, and that was in, in, in response to actually uh, the cold climate where we get the snow. And uh, this is a view of what happens uh, in uh, the snowy months uh, where we have the, uh, uh, the snow collect on the planters to create, uh, as far as I know, uh, since we finished this 12 years ago, uh, this may be the only Islamic garden using uh, snow uh, as a uh, natural landscape feature. And it's a very unusual view because we actually put uh, heaters in the floor. So all the snow melts away and drains into the center uh, of this garden. And uh, we have a series of uh, snow mounds. And this was actually inspired by one of our collaborators uh, in Toronto who, who told me uh, that snow is actually very beautiful if you don't walk on it. And uh, actually, that, that proved to be true, I think, uh, in, this, uh, in this image. And, and finally, this is an aerial view of the building at night uh, of the crystal uh, within the, uh, the mile of uh, history. Our uh, second project uh, brings us uh, to uh, Toronto. And uh, this, this uh, opportunity came concurrent uh, during the time when uh, we were still designing the delegation building, uh, which was just presented. And this is somewhat uh, away uh, from the city uh, on a, a seven hectare site. And uh, when we found the site, uh, uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Charles Correa, 
uh, was uh, in the process of already designing uh, the Ismaili Center uh, for His Highness on a portion of the site, uh, which is the uh, circular drum that you see in this photograph. And that was on the lowest part of the site. And there was an, also an existing office building on this uh, seven hectare uh, property. And uh, the, the, uh, the mission that was tasked to us uh, was uh, to uh, design the Agricon Museum on this site. And before we embarked on that exercise, we uh, suggested to His Highness that uh, perhaps a uh, master plan uh, for the site is needed uh, to create some organization of, uh, and relationship between the museum and the Ismaili Center uh, that was being uh, designed at the time. So before uh, embarking on the design for the museum, uh, we ended up uh, taking on a master planning exercise of how to organize the site. And our idea for the site was that we felt that uh, the centerpiece uh, should uh, be uh, a, maybe a formal garden, uh, an Islamic garden, where the buildings were subservient to that and the garden will help organize the two buildings. On one was uh, secular and one was holy. And uh, there should be a, a kind of a unique relationship uh, on either side of the garden. So you see our concept model here, where uh, again, on this irregular kind of contoured site, uh, the center of the entire composition is a, is a formal garden. And on the left is uh, Mr. Correa's uh, Ismaili Center uh, with the prayer hall uh, facing Mecca. And uh, to the right uh, is flanked a, a kind of building form uh, which uh, represented the, the museum at that time, which like the delegation building had a, uh, an inner courtyard uh, framing a view we thought to the, uh, to the prayer hall. Our actually inspiration for this uh, came from this project uh, in Samarkand. And uh, this is the Re uh, Registan Square, uh, which is a, a beautiful uh, urban space which organizes uh, these three uh, pieces. And when we measured this, uh, the square in between the two front buildings was uh, 80 meters square. And although I think the, the form and scale of the buildings uh, in Toronto were different, uh, the square actually has a certain power to organize uh, the, the architecture. So we thought that would be a very apt, probably, concept uh, for uh, this complex. And uh, we immediately uh, translated that into a plan. So you see that uh, uh, the centerpiece for the entire project becomes a, a, a formal garden and uh, to uh, either side uh, are the buildings. Uh, you see here that the prayer hall on the left uh, with, in the shape of a circular drum uh, is oriented toward Mecca. And then the uh, museum on the right has an inner courtyard uh, with a framed view uh, subservient uh, to the prayer hall uh, framing a, a view of that. So that was a kind of a uh, very unique kind of visual relationship 
uh, that was created uh, around a uh, formal garden. So uh, as we were embarking on this exercise to organize the site, uh, again, His Highness uh, wrote us a letter uh, mentioning that uh, maybe uh, the museum should be organized around the notion of light that has transversed almost all of human history and has been an inspiration for numerous human faiths. Decades of human history are referred to as enlightenment for good reason. The goal would be to capture the day and night sources of light to create a sense of iridescence, reflectivity, and a glow, and to use various manifestations of that light. The combination of such properties will always have a thrilling sense of quality and design and visual interest. I hope that the building and the spaces around it will be seen as a celebration of light and the mysteries of light that nature and the human soul illustrate to us at every moment of our lives. This concept, of course, is particularly validated in Islamic texts and sciences. So this has inspired us uh, to, to come up with a building form, uh, again, very, very simple, but it's faceted on the outside, uh, clad in uh, perhaps the whitest uh, granite that we could find. And it's a Brazilian white black granite. Uh, and with this uh, faceted uh, uh, angular profile, it cat catches uh, the sun uh, as it moves around the, the building. And when uh, one uh, walks into the museum, uh, the ground floor is organized as a cultural forum uh, with a square courtyard uh, in the center, uh, which becomes kind of a center of activity where people can freely come in, perambulate, and enjoy the space, uh, which organize uh, around exhibitions and actually a 500-seat uh, theater uh, uh, to showcase uh, music and performances uh, from Islamic culture that is uh, not so well known and a workshop. So like the delegation building, uh, as one uh, comes into the building, uh, there's a cubic uh, uh, square, uh, courtyard, which actually brings light into the space, uh, serving kind of like a, a, a sundial. And the glass around the courtyard is actually a ceramic fritted uh, with a negative and positive. And as the light comes through it, it creates a third pattern on the solid portion of the, uh, of the glass. And it creates this kind of uh, uh, effect that the traditional jali uh, creates, as you can see uh, in this image from the, uh, from the red fort. And, and throughout the day, as the sun, the source of uh, light uh, within the building uh, comes through the glass, uh, uh, patterns of uh, light and shade move around the, the central courtyard, uh, uh, giving kind of a, a spectacular kind of uh, symphony of uh, light and shade. Another view of that. And uh, within the central space, uh, which we, you can, one can perambulate, we've kind of akin this to uh, uh, a, a Muslim street scene. And in this case, uh, on the top left is an image from Cairo. And in many of these towns, uh, there's a bay window called the Musharabiyah, 
which is a lattice screen, oftentimes uh, carved in wood, uh, in which uh, you look down onto the street. So uh, the public space within the uh, museum uh, was kind of thought of as a street, and we have these four musharabiyas uh, uh, created uh, in cast uh, zinc. And as you can see, uh, we have four of these screens, uh, each one of them uh, 4,000 pieces, uh, which were all kind of handmade. And uh, uh, you see this uh, on the second floor. And when you uh, are in, in the gallery space, uh, you can look down onto the street uh, through the Musharia, giving this kind of modern uh, sense of this traditional uh, uh, Islamic uh, uh, piece. And within the galleries, uh, we thought that uh, how can we uh, bring this kind of unique uh, quality of light uh, into the galleries? And you, you see this uh, light monitor uh, that we have in the galleries bringing in a kind of dappled light. And that precedence, uh, uh, you will find these in many of the mosques in uh, the Muslim world. And, uh, in this case, this reference uh, from the Sheikh uh, Lukfala uh, Mosque, uh, in the clear story, there are these very tiny small apertures in, in which dappled light filters through. And uh, we did this uh, out of uh, honeycomb uh, aluminum, uh, where we have uh, these, these small uh, uh, perforated kind of openings uh, bringing in this filtered light uh, into the gallery, creating this uh, uh, a very unique uh, ambiance. And the final uh, uh, space in the building, uh, which is the uh, theater, uh, is inspired uh, from this uh, faceted uh, dome uh, from uh, one of the oldest uh, uh, bazaars uh, in the uh, in the Islamic world, and this one uh, is from Iran, uh, and and you can see that, that uh, this this uh, spectacular light uh, coming through the dome, and uh, through its facets, you get this kind of interplay of uh, light and shadow, and the the roof of the uh, the theater uh, takes on uh, th this form. And finally, this is the, the final composition of the two pieces around the, uh, the central uh, formal garden uh, and uh, kind of creating kind of a, uh, a new kind of a cultural center uh, around gardens uh, in, uh, in the outskirts of uh, Toronto. Our last project uh, brings us uh, to uh, London in a completely different uh, context. And the two former uh, projects were more kind of in a suburban uh, uh, setting. Uh, this project was at the center of King's Cross in a very kind of high density development in uh, which was at the time the biggest redevelopment uh, project in, in Europe. And, and you see the, uh, the extent of the entire redevelopment. Uh, the Aga Khan uh, Development Network uh, acquired uh, a central property in, in a very kind of high profile area of the development facing uh, two spectacular uh, urban spaces, uh, the Cubit Square and, and Cubit 
part, which was the, the kind of a, a centerpiece of the, uh, the entire development. And in this project, uh, because the context was quite uh, different, uh, His Highness uh, wrote, wrote to us uh, stating that the roofscapes would be a distinctive creation of the architecture and will be at elevations which should give them excellent views over the surrounding areas of London. If all the green spaces are relatively small, relatively secret, and can be physically contained, then the overall approach gives us an opportunity to create a sense of seclusion, environmental privilege, and contained beauty. Both the Islamic garden in itself and the pluralism of gardens within the Ummah are features that are practically unknown in London about the cultures of Islam. It might be worthwhile to consider that each green space should correspond to a particular cultural landscape of a given country or region in the Ummah. The total complex of spaces could be known as the Islamic Gardens of London. So th this was a completely different theme in a different uh, context. And um, uh, what uh, brought us to, uh, it reminded us uh, through our research uh, at this time, uh, we had done about a 10 year research uh, for the two projects and, and we had become uh, quite familiar uh, with uh, uh, various projects in the Muslim world. And this one uh, in Isfahan, which, which at the time that she created uh, kind of a, a new uh, urban uh, city uh, in this location uh, in, in Iran was centered around a very large square uh, of mixed-use uh, activities uh, from, uh, from offices to shops to schools. And uh, we, we sort of thought that the Cubit Square and Cubit Park kind of reminded us as a big kind of urban organizer for the high density development. And uh, in the case of Isfahan, uh, the big mosque that you see on the bottom uh, has a series of sub courtyards uh, around that. And we came upon this concept of a ribbon pathway uh, having uh, uh, a series of smaller uh, courtyards of different size and scale around this uh, very large uh, urban center. And, and we created kind of this diagram uh, uh, thinking that maybe uh, a, a series of these uh, gardens that His Highness talks about can be uh, organized uh, uh, in a ribbon pathway. Uh, for the project itself, uh, we were inspired uh, by this project in Morocco, which is one of, uh, I believe, the oldest uh, academic uh, formal institutions actually in the world dating back to 1565. And uh, this building type is called the Madrasa, uh, which is a kind of a center for education. And what was fascinating uh, was that, uh, as you can see in the plan, a series of uh, classrooms of which there are 130 are organized around a smaller courtyards and those seven clusters of uh, classrooms and courtyards are, are all organized around a central patio. And uh, this to us, it was that kind of series of uh, uh, courtyards that we thought uh, can uh, kind of uh, create this kind of unique uh, 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 environment uh, for education. However, uh, because the site was very uh, dense, 
uh, we had to kind of unfold this uh, vertically. So uh, the concept was uh, to have a series of six uh, courtyards related to the classrooms, uh, to a library, to offices, and obviously on the top, uh, a very unique uh, uh, set of spaces reaching toward the sky, uh, all kind of chiseled out of kind of a cubic uh, stone form. So this was a very early concept model of uh, kind of chiseling out these gardens in a very uh, kind of cubic, uh, cubic form uh, on the site. The question was raised was that, okay, a lot of the concepts were arrived from uh, our research uh, from uh, uh, the Islamic world, but how can this building relate to the site and how does it relate to London? And uh, through our survey, we found that uh, the London city cityscape was largely kind of organized around uh, two types of kind uh, building materials. The more uh, kind of utilitarian and everyday buildings were actually constructed in brick, but the buildings of nobility uh, were clad in, in limestone. And although uh, King's Cross was known for its industrial heritage, upon a very close view, uh, you see kind of pieces of uh, limestone uh, very selectively used in some of the buildings in the industrial buildings at King's Cross. And in walking London, we, we all know the famous uh, Regent Street or Portland Street, uh, which were environments uh, created by the Crown. Uh, these buildings were clad in this noble material of Portland limestone. Uh, coming from the Isle of Portland, uh, south of UK. The buildings uh, at King's Cross, which kind of selectively used limestone, uh, uh, were from Ancaster, north of London. But we found that uh, 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 both uh, stones were uh, actually uh, uh, becoming quite rare. Uh, the, the quarries um, were not producing as much uh, as in the past, and uh, uh, the, uh, from the source, uh, the acquisition was uh, seemed to be quite challenging. So uh, we expanded our search beyond uh, the local limestone in the UK and found ourselves uh, actually in, in Spain, uh, in the region of Andalusia. And we came upon this stone called Calissa Capri, uh, which is found in quarries in the Andalusia region. And uh, you would find this uh, stone actually used in Cordoba and Alhambra, uh, which uh, was the center of the Muslim civilization uh, uh, at the time. And although uh, the quarry in which uh, in which the stone for uh, the Aga Khan Center was acquired was from Alicante. Uh, this, uh, it is all uh, from this kind of uh, region uh, in Spain uh, that uh, we thought um, we would use for the building to use a noble uh, material uh, in a very kind of democratic way. So you can see uh, uh, from this finished image the surrounding buildings are uh, in brick and in this kind of brown, uh, black, and kind of red hue, uh, and the building kind of st uh, stands out as, as kind of a, a very uh, white uh, building uh, for the center of uh, culture and education.
and it's based on a, on a tripartite composition uh, with base, uh, body, uh, and crown. And you can see the gardens kind of uh, chiseled on, the, on every side of the building and, and actually at the top of the building. When one enters, uh, one finds uh, it, itself on the ground floor and a grand kind of stairway leading up uh, to the first uh, story. And uh, on uh, the second, uh, on the first story is a nine-story atrium uh, which reaches toward the sky. And this was similar to the patio that we found uh, in the madrasa organizing uh, this, the series of courtyards. But in this case, uh, we had a stepping series of courtyards and terraces up to the sky. And also this becomes the heart of the institution and as Matt had introduced, there are three institutions of the building, but it's actually seen as one uh, big kind of uh, house that is centered around this uh, living room. It's celebrated by a wonderful uh, uh, sculpture by uh, a Pakistani uh, artist, Rashid uh, Areen, who's based in the UK. And uh, he has done his life work uh, 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 trying to bridge uh, modern minimalism uh, with uh, the geometric history of uh, Islamic culture. And this is such an apt piece uh, uh, within uh, the center of the building uh, uh, that kind of uh, is actually, I think, a symbol of uh, pluralism uh, as well. On the uh, first story, uh, which organizes all of the kind of classrooms and the social spaces uh, is uh, the first garden called the Garden of Tranquility, uh, which was modeled uh, after the Egyptian uh, courtyard called the Makad, which always is uh, north facing. And uh, it has a very kind of decorative uh, ceiling and decorative uh, balusters and this was our modern version which actually faces north overlooking uh, another garden which is uh, currently uh, in construction at the at the site the uh, the baluster uh, as you saw from the previous uh, photograph is uh, very decorative and we did a modern version of that and uh, we've actually uh, laser cut uh, strips of uh, stainless steel uh, you see on the right in a zigzag form and that was organized orthogonally and diagonally. And when you take uh, four of these strips and you put it in a jig uh, and you overlap them, uh, you get uh, this uh, kind of pattern of uh, uh, orthogonal and diagonal. And uh, when you juxtapose that, uh, you get this unique kind of uh, pattern, uh, which is the six uh, uh, pointed star which was the motif uh, for the building. And that was translated into a stainless steel baluster uh, for uh, the gardens uh, in the project. Uh, at, the, at the top of the building, uh, we have a courtyard, uh, which is uh, inspired by the gardens of uh, Andalusia. And this one is completely hidden from the exterior uh, with a a uh, four meter high uh, screen, uh, also inspired by the traditional uh, Jali. And on the screen are uh, poetry panels, uh, which uh, are verses from the Quran uh, with uh, magnolia trees uh, in, the, in the center. 
this was designed by uh, Nelson Bird Waltz uh, with, uh, with our collaboration. And the biggest garden uh, in the building uh, is uh, this Morocco, uh, was a garden uh, inspired by uh, uh, the Mughal gardens of uh, India with a chadar, uh, which is a waterfall you see uh, in uh, white Indian marble with a runnel uh, down the center, reminding us of the uh, uh, of the uh, kind of ag agricultural aspect of Islamic gardens uh, of uh, of the region. And uh, we have botanicals and uh, flowering uh, uh, vegetation, uh, which reaches up toward the sky at the, the at the top of the building. And the last garden uh, is. Uh, associated with what we were calling the crown room, which you saw uh, from the exterior photo at the very top of the building. And it's a very uh, celebratory uh, room that is shared by all of the institutions uh, for meetings and events. And uh, toward the south is a, a very large terrace which overlooks garden. And when one comes out onto it, uh, this uh, space is called the Talar, uh, which is a ceremonial uh, garden, which oftentimes the Imam uh, addresses his uh, congregation. And although uh, this one uh, uh, overlooks uh, London uh, as uh, this very ceremonial room uh, creates kind of an association uh, with the London skyline. And we had a view corridor to uh, St. Paul's that you can see on the right. Uh, so from the space, uh, you, you have kind of a panoramic uh, sequence uh, overlooking uh, London, uh, as His Highness was talking about, uh, from a very kind of perfect space uh, at the top of the building. So in its composition uh, at night, uh, it's almost uh, kind of like a uh, like a beacon on the on the square uh, and on the park. So I'd like to uh, make some closing uh, statements uh, about the three projects that you see here. That uh, each individual one uh, has a different uh, function. Uh, in a different location, uh, and we had its own uh, unique kind of collaborative team on each project, but uh, perhaps you had probably seen some continuation and evolution of themes uh, from uh, 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 project to project, uh, which uh, kind of constitutes our 16-year journey uh, as Japanese architects learning about uh, Muslim culture to create these uh, very unique kind of projects. Uh, in uh, these three uh, different uh, cities. And uh, one of, uh, we are a great fan of a, a scholar and sociologist uh, 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 from uh, the, the UK, I think uh, now uh, uh, he's a professor at Columbia, uh, Richard Sennett. And uh, I'd like to close uh, quoting him, uh, which I thought was uh, very apt to this kind of theme of pluralism and how it relates to architecture. And I think what, what bonds those uh, two ideas is this concept of craftsmanship. And uh, Professor Sennett uh, states that craftsmanship is at the heart of every great work of architecture. 
unlimited by geographic or temporal bounds, the commitment to quality inherent in this notion is as applicable today as it was hundreds of years ago. Regardless of method, material, or scale, the value placed on well-crafted construction still guides design decisions and fabrication. Collaborative efforts and careful attention down to the details yield higher quality buildings that enrich the expression of architecture and its experiences. So I think uh, our, our kind of survey and inspiration uh, from Muslim culture which I think His Highness inspired in, in the letters he has written us, has taken us back 500 years ago uh, to the exercise of creating buildings uh, in these uh, modern times uh, in this past 16 years. And I, I think it, as uh, Professor Sennett mentions, I, I think that um, through uh, all of our collaborators uh, from 21 uh, different nations, and I think over a thousand uh, uh, people uh, from builders to craftsmen to uh, collaborating architects and engineers who have contributed to these uh, uh, very special projects. Uh, we believe that this idea of pluralism uh, is very, uh, apt and one that continues to uh, evolve uh, into the future. Uh, that ends uh, my presentation. And uh, again, I, I, I thank uh, Matt uh, Victoria at the Aga Khan uh, Design uh, Network for this opportunity and uh, all who have contributed to these three uh, special projects. Thank you. Gary, thank you very, very much indeed. Um, it was beautiful to revisit projects. And I think just picking up on your last point about craftsmanship, um, next year when, when everyone can visit the buildings, I think of course what doesn't come across in images is the craft, not just in the physical details, but the incredible craft in the way light is used, um, light and shadow is used. And, and also something that doesn't get talked about so much, the, the craft of how the acoustics of the building have been incredibly carefully considered and the, um, the sense of calm going into the building, which in, in, again in contemporary buildings is quite, is quite rare. And I think it it's just um, demonstrates your Mackey and Associates particular approach to thinking about every single detail and to working with those um, collaborators that can um, help achieve a very particular um, approach to everything from built details to how we hear um, exactly how we how we see things and how we experience the space so they really are quite remarkable buildings and and do need to be visited in the flesh to really experience them um, and I suppose the first question before we take some of the questions from the audience obviously looking back over the three projects Gary you have learnt um, studied Muslim cultures Muslim architecture Muslim gardens you've learnt a lot um, and this approach of kind of incorporating into into architecture you know elements of symbolism and faith and decoration um, and, and meaning is I guess quite different from the conventional canon of modern architecture and the question really is whether I mean how how these projects have impacted your approach to architecture, you know, personally, and the approach of Mackie and Associates. So whether you could just talk about that a little bit. 
Thank you for the, the question, Victoria. Um, to, to be very candid, and it's very embarrassing that uh, as Japanese architects, I, we were very ignorant uh, 18 years ago in 2002 about Muslim architecture. Uh, we had studied a bit uh, when we were back in architecture school, but we really didn't have uh, a great deal of deep understanding and uh, of the meaning and of the history and the opportunity in which uh, these projects presented uh, was uh, a process of research and a much deeper understanding of how modern and, and how contemporary uh, some of the ideas that were imbued uh, in these projects from 500 years ago actually had. And uh, there was never a point uh, where His Highness or any of the stakeholders of the Aga Khan had never come to us and said, please uh, make references. And it's something that continues to evolve. And we thought that uh, these buildings would be a way to kind of take the past and extend it into the future. And although uh, we've completed three buildings, uh, even in our projects that we are doing uh, right now in other parts of the world, uh, we are taking this learning and uh, we're not making quotations, but there are very kind of valid concepts uh, that, that I think uh, not only tectonically, uh, but I think socially. Uh, and, and I think the, the themes that, uh, that were explored uh, the, you know, exploring kind of the mystery of space, uh, the concept of light, uh, and the theme of gardens. How appropriate is, the, is that in, in a day where sustainability and the care for our planet is so important? And, and just kind of a, uh, for the sake of data, the, the uh, delegation building occupies 30% uh, of the site, so 70% uh, is actually open landscape. Uh, the Aga Khan uh, Museum, that occupies 12% of the site. So 88% is parkland, which is a gift uh, of the Aga Khan to the city of Toronto. And uh, I think, Victoria, you might be surprised to learn that uh, if we take all the garden spaces in the Aga Khan Center, uh, the built space only occupies 30% of the site. Although, uh, the footprint is occupies 100% of the site, but if you take into consideration all the gardens, uh, we've created 70% open space over the site. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right, Gary. I think the the projects, um, in sense of the the greenery, and I just think the well-being, um, as well being at the heart of what you've managed to provide for building users. I think in, in terms of these atmospheres of the building and, and providing gardens, I think when we set out at the Aga Khan Center to do the gardens, we didn't, um, we had a mission in the sense that we wanted to, to convey, um, show people that, about the pluralism of, of Islamic gardens. But I think also by providing these gardens, the, the complete quality and day-to-day -day experience of the building has been completely transformed. And I think um, that's become, you know, more and more common now in buildings in London that everyone really trying to incorporate outdoor space in, into buildings. So um, I think we were kind of quite a front runner in doing that at the Aga Khan Center. Um, I think, uh, you know, another, 
there, there are a lot of differences about these projects. All of these projects, as you said, were very, very unique. They were, um, they're not conventional typologies. Maybe the museum is probably the most conventional as a typology, but the delegation building and the um, Aga Khan Center are quite hybrid in their program and in their purpose. And so I think you've said before that these buildings were each, um, you were having to, to um, sort of invent that typology and make it make sense. And those, it takes, it takes time. And one thing I wanted to ask about is the relationship and the, um, of AKD and as a client, you know, as a client, how does this, how did this organization work that is different from your other clients? You know, what, what, um, what were the challenges, but what were also the, the positive aspects of, you know, in some ways the day-to-day -day aspects of running these projects? Thank you for the, the, the question, um, because I talk uh, a lot about our, our own collaborators, which are our partnering architects and uh, the consultant engineering team. But uh, I think in my first or second slide, I had the seven different Aga Khan institutions uh, involved. And when we say the Aga Khan, I think our listeners might think it's a, a sing singular institution, but it's not. It's a very diverse group as well. Uh, we had Aga Khan University involved, the Aga Khan Trust for Culture, uh, the Aga Khan Development Network, and then uh, the schools, the Institute of Ismaili Studies. And what I think sets off uh, these projects is that uh, everybody had on the client side a very personal interest uh, in each of the project. And um, they, they brought about a lot of uh, uh, rich and personal feelings about uh, what kind of place it should be. So again, although I, I think I've focused on a lot of the tectonics, of the building, but it was more about a social agenda about what kind of place. And you kind of mentioned the delegation building, which is simply a, a series of offices and meeting rooms uh, and a residential component. So in terms of a program, it is very simple. But in terms of a building, uh, it aspires to create kind of a social setting, not only for the Aga Khan institution, but on Confederation Boulevard for all of, uh, it, it has kind of an ambassador separated. And I think the, the, the mission uh, while talking uh, with all of the stakeholders was trying to create kind of a place where everybody felt a sense of belonging. Uh, because everybody was separated into their own uh, departments. And, and we thought uh, if we can create this sen sense of belonging between the three institutions, that can be extended uh, to our neighbors. Uh Thank you, Gary. I think we're having a tiny bit of um, internet problems, which um, we've, we've done really well to not so far. Um, I'm going to move on, if I may, to um, we have a number of questions coming through from our audience, and um, if I just if I just read one, uh, this is nicely worded. It says every architect has goose eggs or special secret details that people might or might not know about. Uh, what are your favorite details that you absolutely love from all three buildings? And that's a question from Rahim. 
Well, th thank you for the question. It's a very difficult one to answer because every single one is actually very, very dear to us. So um, I don't think I can uh, uh, point out one, but I think the, the, the one that was actually fascinating because we are so engaged in the tectonics of building uh, and construction, and especially when we realize the design with uh, many contractors and, and builders, uh, at, at the end, what surprises us is actually exactly what His Highness uh, was talking about is when the light interacts with a lot of these details, there, there's kind of an unexpected surprise that you don't see in drawings and, and, and you know, in the model. So uh, you might have been able to see from some of the images that uh, we presented today, uh, the kind of fourth dimension of uh, light and shadow that gets created out of uh, some of the uh, details that we've created in these buildings, I think make them uh, quite, quite special. And, and I think those are very, uh, they provide a distinct uh, character, I think, to all three buildings. Thank you, Gary, for that answer. We've, I've, I've got a number of questions really around um, the topic of sustainability in architecture and um, the, the, obviously the, the absolute need to move to a zero carbon architecture by, by all architects globally. And I think the question, I think, you know, the buildings um, that you've shown us have um, been able in a way to take from uh, global resources. They've been able to use materials from around the world and there's certain, you know, energy required um, to do that. And there's also, you know, natural resources have been used within the architecture industry over, over the course of time. I think the, a question might be, is, is really, as, as we go forward in architecture, um, how has the imperative to design really sustainably in every aspect of building detailing and building technology from embodied carbon right to the application, how, how, might you be developing um, new projects in light of that, um, in that imperative? You know, how has that infected your work, Im impacted your work as a practice? And how might buildings be different in the future from ones that you may have designed in the past? Yes, thank you for the question. Um, I think this is a rapidly kind of uh, evolving uh, survey collectively uh, address. And I, I think in, in terms of uh, these three buildings, I think there was a, a tremendous cognizance uh, in, in that light to kind of uh, reduce and minimize the footprint. I think we're having a little trouble with the internet, I'm afraid, Gary. Um, I'm not quite sure what the technical issue is. And uh, we were doing really well. So I'm wondering, maybe I could just ask you to try one, try one more time and just maybe repeat a little bit of that answer. Okay, yes, thank you for the question. Um, moving at such a rapid pace, because I think the, you know, dis discovering that uh, the, the, the goals of zero carbon needs to be kind of kicked in uh, much, well, almost immediately 
because the global warming is proceeding at, at such a rate. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, we aspire uh, in all three of these projects is kind of reducing the, the footprint of the buildings and maximizing uh, green space in as much as uh, possible. Gary, thank you. Again, because you're um, cutting off, I might just ask whether you, whether you might switch off your video and just let everyone hear your answers, which might help the internet issues we're having. That's okay. I, and I did want to add on the issue of sustainability that the Aga Khan Centre in London, um, I think uh, made, it's a, it's a building that achieved BREEAM excellent um, in terms of its sustainability credentials. And there are lots of aspects in the building that we paid attention to in terms of um, sustainability features. You know, all of, the, all of the water, for example, from all of the gardens is used within the building um, and so on. And the building has an incredibly high level of insulation, which means that actually the costs to heat and cool the building um, are relatively low for an office building. Plus, if you, for those who know the building, the, the windows have this a magnificent opaque um, frit on them, which actually cuts down by 50% the amount of heat and light going into the building while um, giving this beautiful quality of diffused lights. So I think that whole, the energy uses of the building, the, the way resources are used, was considered in every detail of, of that building, um, although it's not obviously evident to the, to the eye. Um, so Gary, I'm just, I just wanted to, again, ask um, another question from the audience, which is a bit about your office in Tokyo um, and just about um, the kind of different architects you have in your office and, and what the roles are for young people and how you make opportunities for young people with, within your office to, tr to train and learn as architects. Uh, yes, I think we've been uh, actually quite uh, fortunate uh, um, through our years is that there's quite a bit of uh, interest worldwide from uh, interns from all over the world. And uh, we have our own kind of means and methods uh, based upon uh, kind of a root of Japanese culture, as we've talked about. Uh, a practice centered around the craft of uh, building and uh, it stems from kind of a, a Japanese uh, building industry culture where architects are allowed to be stationed on site full time uh, during uh, the, the construction of a building, uh, which uh, is not all, always the case uh, in different parts of the world. And uh, with such an interest, uh, I think in that aspect, of uh, uh, the Japanese building industry, we always have uh, uh, students as well as young practitioners from around the world wanting to uh, to join our practice, which uh, uh, creates a, quite a diversity uh, within uh, our own office as well. So, uh, uh, with the the buildings I introduced today, uh, we actually had a. Uh, I can remember we had an Australian architect. We also had an architect from Germany, uh, architect uh, from Uruguay, uh, and also uh, architect from China. Uh, that that was uh, within our team uh, working on these Aragon projects. And I think there's a related question we have about 
you know, um, the design process within, within your practice. And um, it would be interesting to describe in relation to these three projects, from the initial concept, um, in a way, His Highness always gave this incredibly clear vision for each of the three projects, you know, the crystal light and the gardens. Um, how much time as a practice did, are those ideas that you would need to play around with a lot to get from your initial concepts to the final concepts? Or what is a little bit about your methodology? Um, I think as a client, we would see work that you had done, but clearly there had been a lot of thinking um, gone on to get to some of the propositions. And I think it's interesting for some of the audience here to hear about that stage between receiving the brief and the initial propositions and in, that come to the client. Yes, um, this does not, um, uh, uh, not associated only with these three projects, but, but uh, in our office we have uh, at the beginning of every project something uh, we call the blind search. Um, and that's to uh, rid any prejudice that we might have co coming into any project. So uh, there's a wide uh, exploration uh, th that is encouraged and it doesn't matter uh, how many years you've been in the office or how much experience you have. Uh, young architect and mature architect, we are all encouraged to, uh, to participate in this blind search. Uh, at the beginning of a project. And it goes through kind of a Darwinian process of the survival of the fittest. And the unfit schemes uh, begin to kind of erode and go away. And I think, Victoria, you may have seen uh, some of the ones uh, that we've studied and, and didn't survive till the end. But that, that is kind of a, a process uh, which actually is one that uh, our principal, Fumikumaki, uh, established from the be very beginning uh, of the office. And maybe be because of uh, his background, uh, having a research lab at universities as a professor, that, uh, that uh, it was uh, very central to our practice as an atelier to kind of encourage that kind of uh, methodology based upon uh, research and trial and error. And, and that uh, uh, investigation not only is at the beginning of the project, but it continues and persists through uh, the details of a project, you know, as well. So I think that characterizes, um, but in this case um, of the Khan projects, one of the things I must mention uh, is that time was really a luxury, that there was really no kind of rush uh, on the project and we had kind of an ample uh, time for uh, investigation and dialogue uh, you know, within our office, within the stakeholders and uh, with the Aga Khan. And I, I, I think that that was very important to uh, uh, in the process of finding the right solution. And that's not always the case on, on every single project. So uh, we're very thankful uh, and appreciative that uh, that kind of environment uh, was created, uh, not only by us, but uh, by uh, AKDN uh, as well. And, and I think that is a, um, a great lesson and I think that everyone here today has really understood over the last six months um, while there's a lot of um, stress and distress going on 
there has been this um, time and the ability to really feel the benefit of time um, and slowing down. And I, and I think that, um, just to begin to conclude, I think that these projects and the pace and thought at which you considered them, at which they were taken, and with which His Highness Khan allowed these projects to happen, um, allowed this, these very unique and special responses. So I think that we have many, a number of questions about pluralism. And I think the general message that you describe pluralism as a process, I think is, is, a, is a huge takeaway from these projects. And especially at this time where everyone in, the, in, in everything they do, not just designing for the built environment, needs to, to be thinking about how, um, how everything around us should be taking into account these notions of pluralism and unity and diversity together. So we really, really thank you, Gary, for sharing with us these um, projects for the last 16 years. It's quite an achievement. Um, and like I said, a, a privilege to have been part of it. Um, to the audience, I'm sorry that we had a few technical issues. We have, I think, tried to uh, cover most of the questions. And I think we had a number of questions along different themes. And uh, uh, we will be um, posting and sending to everyone the recording of this talk. And it, it had also been live streamed. We just wanted to um, maybe make, let you know also that the, uh, there's been a short film made about the Aga Khan Center. And this has been made by Open House and it will be, I think, launched today on the Open House website. So if you'd like to experience more of the building in a three-dimensional sense, please do visit that. And of course, on the other websites of the Aga Khan Development Network, including the Aga Khan Center websites, there are a number of other films, um, including films specifically about the gardens, which have a lot more commentary from, from Gary and from the design team. So it was fantastic to have everyone here today with enormous thanks to Gary um, for joining us today from Tokyo. And thank you again to everyone else 